So I did the thing again. I think I was subconsciously worried that the Carthage show was a little bit short at 16 minutes, even though that was as long as the story took, and I don't think there's really any pressure on me to put out longer shows, but maybe it was in the back of my mind eating away at me. So what was originally intended to be another short companion piece to the Carthage show, well, I went and Dan Carland myself, so you might want to pop the kettle on. We're in here for the long haul. What do you got there, Bellows? Snacks. We're here for the long haul. Alright, we've covered the Carthaginian side of things, so it's time that we took a look at the founding of the city of Rome. One of the better historians to look at in this regard is a guy by the name of Tim Cornell, who wrote the book The Beginnings of Rome, and he says that none of this stuff can be, and I'm quoting here, historically true in any literal sense. So it can't be historically true in any literal sense. That's the kind of framework we're working with. All of this stuff is bullshit. It's 90% bullshit. But it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. But of course, the literal sense has never really been a concern for us when the legend is so much better. But I agree with John Ford. When you have to choose between the truth and the legend, print the legend. But it's worth keeping in mind that there's not a great deal of fact involved in this story. So if anyone's looking for some hard-hitting historical accuracy, you've got to keep that in mind. But there is some kick-ass legend, and that's what we're going to do. So here's the story of how the great city of Rome was founded according to the Romans themselves. Oh, and if you're looking for sources on this, pick literally anyone with a Roman-sounding name, any of those ancient historians, Livy, Tacitus, Polybius, they all pitched in their two sesterces worth on the founding of Rome. So go and hit them up. That's what I did. The best account we have of all of this comes from the ancient historian Livy who was knocking around about the same time as Julius Caesar. And that is, if you know your history, quite a bit after the founding of ancient Rome, a few centuries. This is kind of like taking my show as gospel for anything. I wasn't there, I leave a lot out, and I take a few liberties to make a cohesive narrative. But I'm also aware that Google exists, and you guys can all fact-check me. Livy He didn't have any such concerns. So while he says he's telling the truth, we kind of got to take him at face value there, and some of it is obviously gilding the lily. But that being said, that's kind of what I'm doing. So remember, this is me attempting to weave a tale made from the material left by ancient historians who were themselves weaving a tale. None of this should be taken as gospel. Oh, and none of the Gospels should be taken as Gospel either. All of that shit is made up. At least this story has some elements of truth in it. So if you'll recall, our Casanova from the last episode, Aeneas, he was shacking up with the Queen of Carthage, Dido. It's not so bad. It's not so bad. But he did a runner in the middle of the night because he had this dream that he was going to go off and found the city of Rome, and obviously ain't no time for bitches, so he took off. Apparently he didn't question why the city was called Rome and not 
Aeneum. Aeneas may not have been too bright, but take off he did to found this new city, and as a consequence, Dido, the Queen of Carthage, cursed Aeneas and all of his bloodline for eternity. And then she goes and kills herself because this is an ancient story and that's what you'd do. Meanwhile, Aeneas has absolutely no clue that any of this has gone on. He thinks everything's just hunky-dory and he is off having a bunch of adventures all over the world. And one of his adventures has him go to the underworld, the realm of Pluto slash Hades. It's kind of the switching point between Greek and Roman mythology. And he goes to the underworld where he meets Dido, who had killed herself, if you'll recall. And it's upon meeting Dido that he kind of goes, oh, shit, yeah, I yeah, meant to tell you I'm off to found another city, probably should have told you that, kind of upset about how things went. And she tells him to go and fuck himself and then double curses him, but this time she has magic ghost powers. Eventually, Aeneas makes it all the way to Italy, where he meets the king of the local people there, a guy by the name of Latinus hence where we get the word Latin. Aeneas explains to this Latinus dude that he's an exiled prince of Troy looking for somewhere to settle down well away from the war, and you're not going to believe this, but the gods, they want me to marry your daughter, Lavinia, even though she's betrothed to somebody else and I just rocked up here out of nowhere. And apparently, this line actually worked. Because King Latinus, he said, well, I can't argue with the gods. Lavinia, I'm sorry, forget your betrothal. You're marrying Aeneas now because that's how things work. Please believe me, baby, you surprised me too. When God told me to fuck you. which is absolutely in line with Aeneas' previous modus operandi of moving into a new area and seeing which royals he could immediately bang. That was absolutely his only agenda at any point. Now, since royal marriages back then were most often made for the purposes of political alliances, this new arrangement ruffled quite a few feathers, and pretty soon there was a civil war. Long story short, Aeneas fights in this civil war, and his side wins, but tragically, King Latinus falls in battle, leaving Aeneas in charge as the new king of this Italian kingdom. Which all seems quite a bit too convenient. This new guy moving in, usurping the king who tragically died in battle, seems a little sus to our modern sensibilities, but apparently nobody back then questioned these kind of coincidences. We have become a much, much more cynical people in the last 3,000 years. And that's basically the story of Virgil's Aeneid, the classic poem. The rest of the Aeneid is basically Aeneas himself having sex with absolutely everyone, women killing themselves when they can't have sex with him anymore, and then instead of dying and getting what he deserves, Aeneas becomes a god, which makes him the second most Mary Sue character in history, right after Ray Skywalker. But the relevant plot point of the Aeneid is the fact that Aeneas' son, Ascanius, he wants to forge his own legend. He wants to become his own man. So off he goes and he founds his own city in the middle of the Italian coastline, the city known as Alba Longa, 
which is modern-day Castel Gandolfo, which is the coolest name for a town ever. Now, Alba Longa wasn't much of a city back then. It was your standard Iron Age thatch huts arranged in some kind of circle around a bonfire. You know, the kind of... Imagine barely out of caveman times and you're in the ballpark. It could barely be called a city. It was just a bunch of huts. We've really come a long way in how we define the term city since then. But a city it was, and it had a ruling family dating all the way back to Aeneas. Supposedly. Aeneas didn't actually exist, but they didn't know that. And the king of this shanty town, Alba Longa, which will one day become Castel Gandolfo, I was there, Gandolfo. The king of this place was a guy by the name of Numitor. This is all relevant information. It's going to become crucial. Numitor was the king of the small city of Alba Longa, which will become Castel Gandolfo. And the king's brother was a dude by the name of Amulius. And Amulius decides that he would be a much better king than Numitor because that's how this tale works. It's a story older than time. The jealous brother usurps the king. We've all seen this story play out a thousand times. It's your basic Lion King setup. Now, there's a bloody coup. There's a lot of fighting. There's some regicide happening. But the crucial plot point is that Numitor, the king, he manages to escape these assassins. Which is bad news for his brother, Amulius, the guy who instigated the coup. You tend to not want the king to survive. Long live the king. Now, Amulius, he wasn't an idiot. When you take power, you need to consolidate that power. That's coup 101 right there. So the first thing you need to do is start killing off anyone who also has a legitimate claim to the throne. And that's exactly what he starts doing. It's a pogrom of anyone with royal blood. Numitor might have escaped, but he's still out of the picture regardless. Amulius is in charge now, and he is going to purge that royal bloodline to make sure that he remains in charge. What is pertinent is that the previous king's daughter by the name of Princess Rhea. She had just given birth to twins. If you know anything about the founding of Rome, you know that twins is a crucial plot point. And these twins, Romulus and Remus, were the grandchildren of King Numitor, and thus the rightful heirs to the throne of Alba Longa. And to the usurper, Amulius, these twins are a potential problem. They're not a problem right now, they're just wee bands, but someday they are going to come back and jam a sword in his ribs. Again, that's how this story works. We've seen it play out a thousand times. Joseph Campbell? Yeah, nice try. He died in the 80s. So, Amulius needs to solidify his hold on the throne. Having rightful heirs out there anywhere, that's bad news to his claims. Everyone knows the Epic of Gilgamesh, the hero's journey. You you can't go leaving the chosen ones out there alive. It is 100% guaranteed that they're going to grow up not knowing their royal lineage until they meet a wizard and find a magic sword, and then they come after you with said magic sword and you die a horrible death. Everyone knows this. Creativity is frankly adjacent to mental illness and overlaps with it substantially. Amulius, he has no desire to have a magical sword in his head. So he decides that the best course of action 
is to kill these twins. Murder them right now before they become magical wizard people. Great. Who are we killing? I won't do kids. That's a rule. But that rule is negotiable if the kid's a dick. Just tie up that loose end. Again, that's basic regicide. Coup 101. You kill the rightful heirs. We've all seen Hamlet and Snow White and the Lion King and the Sword in the Stone. I could keep going. If you're making a play to be the king, you kill the children. Otherwise, they're going to come back to haunt you with their freaky, mythical, magical powers. So obviously, the easiest solution is to throw these newborn twins into the Tiber River. Problem solved. That way, for liability purposes, it's the river that kills the twins and not their evil uncle. And this will actually come up quite a lot throughout the history of Rome, just how many problems that the Romans will try and solve by dumping bodies, living or dead, into the Tiber River. All throughout the Roman Republic and well into the Roman Empire, their troubleshooting flowchart consisted almost entirely of, have you tried throwing it in the Tiber River yet? Yes, throw it in the Tiber River again. So Amulius puts the twins into a sack, ties it off, and chucks them into the Tiber River like a litter of puppies he didn't want. But, as fate would have it, putting these babies in a sack and throwing them into the river did not kill them. Because it's a very poor myth that has the chosen one killed in the very first act. I mean, Joseph Campbell wrote extensively about how the hero's journey had to have an actual journey and they don't die on the first page. Joseph Campbell told me to stop writing. So these twins, not being dead, they wash up on the shore of the Tiber. But they're still little baby twins. They can't fend for themselves. What's going to happen? Well, as fate would have it, the twins are then found by a passing she-wolf. Because why not? And the she-wolf, instead of eating these babies, decides to adopt them as her own. Which is obviously not ideal for newborn human babies to be reared by a wolf, but it's a hell of a lot better than being found by a meerkat and a warthog who tell you to just not worry about shit and sing a nonsense song about how you shouldn't have emotions about your father's murder which happened 15 minutes ago. You tell me which one's more believable. So the she-wolf adopts these twins, Romulus and Remus, as her own, and she rears them as her own, giving these demigod children of Mars the additional power of being werewolves. I will say this about Roman mythology, it is busy. And this wolf takes these twins to the wolf cave that she had, and it's called the Lupercal Cave, which is the Latin for wolf cave, and the center of the Lupercalia Festival, which is something that I've covered before, and feel free to go and boost those metrics. So the twins, Romulus and Remus, they grow up for a bit drinking wolf milk, and then getting awesome werewolf abilities because of it. Then, when they're a little bit older, Romulus and Remus are found by a passing shepherd, who takes them in and teaches them how to be real human boys, and they grow up as dirt-poor peasant shepherd boys, not knowing their awesome heritage. You all know the story. It's not really original. It is quite literally the monomyth. As I said, Joseph Campbell wrote about this at length. And because the story is exactly every single tale from Gilgamesh to The Matrix, 
you know that these two boys eventually discover their heritage because of their innate awesomeness, which cannot be suppressed, and they use this power to overthrow their duplicitous uncle and resume their rightful place as kings. Because that's the way the story goes. As far as very recently, it was just accepted knowledge by everyone that kings were just innately better than anyone else. Kings were quite literally a different breed of humans, and no matter what situation you placed them into, the kingliness of these kings would shine through, and it would be quite obvious that a king was a king, and we should all bow down before them because divine right of being awesome king people which is an amazing bit of propaganda that has worked wonders for several thousand years. And I'm really glad that we are now, in 2023, the year of our Lord, finally starting to get this out of our systems. We're not there yet. I mean, go and look at the circus going on in England right now, where billions of pounds are being spent on a ceremony where an adulterer gets a new hat, but at least it's a lot better than it used to be. Go and reread Lord of the Rings. Not the movies, reread the book. Aragorn is not the reluctant heir to the cursed throne of Gondor. Throughout the entire series, he's doing all of these amazing things simply because he's a king. He's the king of Gondor. He had royal king blood. Aragorn was born different to everyone else. He was born a king. The whole thing of him being a humble everyman forced to lead the last armies of Middle-earth All of that was a change made by Peter Jackson for the films so that modern audiences could relate to the character and not think that he was some uppity dickwad. So yeah, until last century, everyone just sort of assumed that kings were naturally better. It's a shit philosophy, but that was the philosophy. And that's how it applied to Romulus and Remus. Even as dirt-poor shepherds, their kingliness shone through. So Romulus and Remus, they leave their adopted father and go off to seek their fortune in the big smoke and they find their way to civilization as naught but humble shepherds. But when they hit the big city, everyone recognizes that they're kings because kings are just better than normal people and everyone just swears fealty to them on the spot because kings are super awesome. And then, with the assembled power of their newfound masses of supporters, Romulus and Remus storm the palace, overthrow their murderous uncle, and take their rightful place in society. That of kings. I think it's been about 20 minutes since I called for a republic in Australia, but yeah, we should definitely be a republic. In case you can't tell, I fucking hate royalty. I despise being a royal subject, and I'd very happily watch all of them swing. So, long story short, Romulus and Remus both become leaders of men because of their inherent kingly awesomeness. They each independently raise armies because of their inherent kingly awesomeness, and together they merge their armies and they overthrow their evil uncle and restore Numitor, the rightful king, to the throne of Alba Longa, and everyone lives happily ever after. It's the hero's journey. But there's a problem. King Numitor of Alba Longa has now been restored to his rightful throne. I mean, that's a good thing, right? But now there's a problem, because his grandsons, Romulus and Remus, they have both proven their kingly credentials. Their kingliness cannot be denied any further. This town isn't big enough for the three of them. So Romulus and Remus decide to strike out on their own. On the 21st of April... 
753 BCE, Romulus and Remus decided to build a new city. And they wanted this new city to be the best new city in the world. So first, they looked for a good spot to found this city. You know where's a good spot to found a city? Uh, I don't know. How about that place where we suckled on a wolf's teat and gained superpowers? That's a good spot. And there it was. The site of what would become ancient Rome, the Lupical Cave. That's where they founded their new city, which is located in what is now known as modern-day Rome. Now, obviously, that bit about the She-Wolf is a later addition. It makes things more narrative. But the real reason that Rome is built where it is is because that's just the best place in the area to build a new city. It was just the logical spot that you would do it. There's no grand mystery to it. It's just, yeah, oh, there. Obviously, that's the best spot. There was this one place on the Tiber River that had a series of hills around it. If you've ever played a civilization game, you know that this is good news for starting a new city. You put it on a hill. And there's a reason that civilization video games were designed this way. And that's because cities have always been founded on the same principles. Almost all capital cities in the world are founded on rivers. Rivers are crucial. They provide fresh water for drinking, which is something humans need to do every day. And this is your reminder to drink a glass of water because you probably haven't had enough today. Rivers are also useful for shitting in. They take away all of your waste, which is another crucial factor in ancient sanitation. Rivers have fish in them. And fish also draw animals which prey on fish. So right there, you've got some victuals to eat. And rivers are also the ancient world's primary means of transporting goods and people. That's why capital cities are all founded on rivers. Water, food, transportation... Sanitation. All the major reasons. That's why every major capital city in the world is founded on a river, except for Canberra, which was built in the middle of nowhere out of spite, and they put the river in later to just match everyone else in the world. Just quickly, if anyone wants to know about the history of the founding of the capital of Australia, Canberra, it's this. Back in the late 1800s, Australia was a nation on the grow, and there were two major population centres, Sydney and Melbourne. Sydney was the first settlement in Australia, but Melbourne was the fastest growing city in Australia. And when Australia decided that they needed to have their own capital city, both Sydney and Melbourne wanted to be the nation's capital. Melbourne claimed that they had more people, they were the cultural centre of Australia, so it should be Melbourne that is the capital. Sydney claimed that it should be Sydney because Sydney was the first colony and because Melbourne has shit weather. And nobody could agree on who should be the capital, so it was decided, after very much bickering, that Australia would build a new city that would be the capital, and they would put that city directly in between Sydney and Melbourne. They got out a map, they found the precise, exact middle point between Sydney and Melbourne, which is smack bang in the middle of fucking nowhere, with nothing around for hundreds of kilometres, and they built a city there purely to spite Sydney and Melbourne. That is the sole, solitary reason for the founding of Australia's capital, Canberra. Spite. It was built out of spite. But most cities are not built out of petty tantrums. Most cities are built on hills next to rivers, and that's the case with Rome. 
Hills because they're good defensively, and rivers because of all the other reasons. The river is the most crucial thing, for all of the reasons I just outlined, but if you're looking for bonus points on city building, the other major consideration when founding a city is that it should be on a hill. Hills are very important for defense. If you're on top of a hill, you get to see more of the surrounding landscape, so you know what's going on and you have more time to react. It's also easier to defend a hill, which is why most combat in history has been people either defending or attacking a hill. And, often overlooked but arguably of greatest importance, shit rolls downhill. This is a big deal. Anything that you don't want to be in your city anymore, from human waste to actual humans, all of that can be hosed downhill and it becomes someone else's problem. That's why hills are good. So Romulus and Remus looked around and they saw that this site for their new city, it didn't have just one good hill, it didn't have two good hills, it had seven hills. Jackpot. The seven hills of Rome, running alongside the Tiber River, were the Quirinal, the Viminal, the Capitoline, the Esquiline, the Palatine, the Caelian, and the Aventine. The Seven Hills of Rome. It needs to be noted that these are not big hills. They're not mountains. They are hills. It's just that history and mythology make everything sound more awesome than they actually are. These are just your run-of-the-mill hills. I mean, just like exist everywhere in suburbia. They're just a little bit higher than everywhere else. They have this mythical status as the sites of the founding of the Eternal City, but they're just they're mounds. They're not really special. But they got the job done, and this site was the perfect location for a city. But only one hill can be the founding point of this new city. Rome will eventually absorb all of them, but you have to start somewhere. You need to pick one hill. And this is where the problems start, and it will eventually lead to a lot of people dying, which is how history usually works. The twins could not agree on which hill to build on. Remus wanted to build on the Aventine Hill. Romulus wanted to build on the Palatine. The distance between these two hills is almost exactly one kilometer, and the hills themselves are almost exactly identical. Keep this in mind, because a lot of people are going to die because of this. Both of these hills are almost identical. If I were to show you photos of the Aventine and Palatine hills, there is no way you would be able to tell them apart. Kind of like Romulus and Remus, I guess. They're twins, which is a nice bit of symmetry, I guess. So who gets to decide where the city should go? Which hill are we going to build on? Well, usually that decision would fall on the eldest. But remember, these brothers were twins. They didn't know who popped out first not like the wolf's going to come along and say which one she found first. We can't settle this debate easily. So it was decided that the gods would put the issue to rest. Because that always works well, doesn't it? We'll let the gods decide whose identical hill is the most awesome. So Romulus took his entourage and camped out on the Palatine. Remus took his posse to the Aventine. And there, they waited for a sign from the gods. And since a sign from the gods can be absolutely fucking anything, 
we're going to be in for a wild ride. Remus sees it first. Remus, he sees six vultures circling over the Aventine Hill, and he gets excited because that's his sign that the gods favor the Aventine. I don't know if circling vultures are quite the augury that I'd be looking for, the sign of good fortune. I don't think anyone has ever said, oh good, the vultures are here, but that's what he went with. Remember, a sign from the gods is whatever you want it to be. So Remus, he says, I have six vultures over here, the gods favor me, all hail the founding of the city of Reem. But then Romulus fires back. I have Twelve vultures circling the Palatine Hill. The gods favor me more, twice as much, and thus we shall found the mighty city of Rome. And Remus says, Well, I saw the birds first, I win, it's Reem. And Romulus says, Who cares about when they showed up? I have twice as many carrion birds. I am holy, holier than thou. Rome shall be founded. And the twins debated the issue for a bit. And then they started calling each other names. And then Romulus stabbed Remus in the head, which is always a very effective rhetorical technique and tends to win the argument. And that's why Rome is Rome and not Reem. It's a city founded on murder, on fratricide, and it defines the Roman psyche for a thousand years. Now, obviously that story is mostly bullshit. Parts of it may be true, but that's not how the city was actually founded. But what is important is that the story is what the Romans themselves wanted you to believe about the founding of their city. It's their fiction. It's what they told people. They came up with it. The fact that it was founded by men, raised by wolves, a man murdered his own brother over a petty dispute about birds and hills. That's what the Romans wanted you to know about them. That's the crucial information they wanted to convey. It's an important lesson to learn about the ancient Romans. They themselves admitted themselves that they were willing to die over ridiculously petty bullshit. And it gets even wilder from there. Okay, but first, something that is important that I couldn't figure out where to put anywhere else in this story. The city of Rome was founded around seven hills, after Romulus proved through violence which hill was the best, but the city actually encompassed all of these hills. So the Romans built a wall that ran around the base of all seven hills, and that was the foundation of classical Rome. That was the border of the original city. And this border was known as the Pomerium. The Pomerium is super important in Roman culture, this ancient boundary of the ancient city. The word Pomerium is a contraction of Postmoerium, which translates to beyond the wall, so Pomerium basically just means border. And the Pomerium took on some super important religious and cultural significance. Obviously Rome grew heaps past that original wall and it sprawled a long way, but the Pomerium was always important. All of the religious and political buildings were inside that boundary. One of the main rules of the Pomerium was that it was super ultra illegal to carry weapons inside the boundary of the Pomerium. Nobody could enter the bounds of ancient Rome armed. So if a general was also a politician, which was almost always, he'd have to surrender his weapons before he went into the Senate. 
If a very successful general was having a triumph, he would have to disband all of his legions before they'd actually be allowed to enter the city and participate in the ceremony. There were a ton of rules about what could and could not occur inside the Pomerium, the bulk of which are for another time because it's an incredibly dense legal field trip, but those are the big plot points. And no Roman would ever dream of breaking those rules. It was just inconceivable to them. No Roman would even conceive of breaking the rules of the Pomerium. Right up until Julius Caesar comes along and says, Hey, the rules say that nobody is allowed to have weapons inside this boundary, and you're all following those rules, and if I don't give a fuck about the rules, that means I'm the only one with a weapon. Bow before your new god-emperor. It was slightly more complicated than that, obviously, but it is pretty much how things went down. But that wouldn't be for a few hundred years in the future. Right now, Rome is a freshly minted city on the grow. So Romulus has just murdered his brother and founded his new city of Rome. But there's a problem. Rome is a city populated almost exclusively by pirates and scoundrels and desperados. The kind of people in Romulus's war band and the kind of people who didn't have a problem with his murdering his own brother over a dispute about how many vultures there were. They were what Hillary Clinton would call deplorable. Livy himself describes them as, quote, an obscure and lowly multitude, end quote. The city at this point was an absolute sausage festival. They were mostly men. There is no vajayjay anywhere in this city. And Romulus was concerned that the population of Rome would die out within a couple of generations because they didn't have any broodmares with which to continue pumping out units. So Romulus hatches a plan. He decided to hold a festival of games celebrating the founding of his new city, and he invited people from the surrounding area, particularly the nearby Sabines, who were another Italian tribe and had the misfortune of being the nearest tribe to this band of psychopaths who had just put down roots and built their own city. Romulus invites everyone around to come to these new games to celebrate the founding of his new city. So a whole bunch of nobles from Sabine wander over and join the Roman housewarming party. And there are games and feasting and dancing, and it's great, everyone's having a good time, and everyone's having this huge party, and they're getting good and drunk, and then at the signal of Romulus, the Roman troops killed all of the men in attendance and abducted all of the women to be their new wives. Because that's how you get women to your city. This, of course, provoked a response from the Sabines, as you might expect, and they sent an army of their own to recapture their womenfolk. However, the Romans, being Roman, defeated them in combat, and they were allowed to keep their brides Mad Max style, because of their superior martial might. At which point Romulus says, Jupiter obviously approves of my actions, I am epically awesome, all of this was justified by the gods, they favor my tactics of rape and murder, look at all the vultures that have shown up over this battlefield, the gods clearly favor me. And this incident is known to history as the Rape of the Sabine Women. We can do you rapiers, or rape, or both. Flagrante delicto. For a handful of coin, I happen to have a private and uncut performance of the rape of the Sabine women. Or rather, woman. Or rather, Alfred. 
although it should be noted that the word rape in this sense comes from the Latin word raptio, which means, and this tells you a lot about Rome, that they actually have a word for this, raptio means to kidnap a large amount of women, not to kidnap a woman or to kidnap a couple of women. Raptio means the kidnapping of a large amount of women. If you want a quick etymology lesson, Latin is a funky language full of different forms of nouns and verbs depending on how you use them. So the kidnap of all of these women made the word raptio, which led to the question of what if there wasn't a bunch of women getting kidnapped? What if it was just one woman? So they had to come up with a new word for just one woman, and that word was rapier, and from that word we get the modern word rape. It's a weird etymological and cultural insight into the Romans. But what is truly odd is that all of this was part of the Roman origin myth. This is the story that they themselves came up with, the one that they told their children, the version of events that they themselves wanted to broadcast to the rest of the world to describe what it means to be Roman. Hey, we're Rome. We're a city founded when two brothers who were raised by a wolf couldn't agree on which hill was the best, so one of them murdered the other one and then founded a city based on large-scale sexual assault. Or I guess perhaps more to the point, and maybe the point they were trying to get across, hey, we're Rome, we take what we want, when we want, try and stop us. Which, I guess, is very true throughout history, and maybe exactly the kind of advertising they were going for. Now, was any of this actually true? Well, some of it is. The archaeological evidence does point to a settlement in Rome at about 750 BCE, which is close enough to Livy's account of things that we have to give him credit for that one. It wasn't a booming city, at least not by classical Greek standards, but it was a city nonetheless. Was this city founded by a brother-murdering rapist? Probably not, but the timelines do match, and there was an ethnic group of people known as the Sabines who were regularly at war with the Romans before finally being absorbed into their empire, and we know that the Romans like to justify their wars, I mean the term they use is Cassus Belli, cause of war, So, a large-scale rape of Sabine women isn't entirely out of the question, it just can't be conclusively proven. But the result is the same. We got the city of Rome, founded by its first king, Romulus. Now, you might be wondering about the king bit, and well played if you were. That's a good thing to wonder about, because Rome famously hated kings. We all know that. Rome had a pathological hatred of kings. If anyone knows anything about Rome, it's how much they hated kings. And here we are, talking about how Romulus was Rome's first king. How can we square away that their hero Jesus figure was a king? Well, the Roman problem with kings, or in Latin, rex, it's weird. It's the rex part of it that they hate it. You could have a guy who is exactly like a king in every functional sense, but as long as you didn't call him a king, everyone was happier to play around with the semantic wiggle room and just say that we don't have a king, we've got a blah blah blah. It was the word king that they had a problem with. Romulus was the first king, and traditionally, there were seven kings of Rome. 
which sounds sus because seven is such an auspicious number, especially in relation to how many hills there were, but according to legend there were seven kings of Rome, and they were Romulus, Numa Pompilius, Tullus Hostilius, Ancus Marcius, Lucius Tarquinius Priscus, Servius Tullus, and finally, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus. And now that I've recited them all, even I feel like I'm doing a Monty Python sketch. What about you? Do you find it visible when I say the name? Dickus? Dickus? <laughs> he has a wife, you know. You know what she's called? She's called Incontinentia. Incontinentia buttocks. Damn! What's it, so Rome had seven kings, each ruling for about, on average, 30 years. And all of them have interest in their own right, they're all interesting people, but the one we want to focus on for this story is the last one, the seventh and final king of Rome. The seventh king of Rome was a guy by the name of Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, or Tarquin the Proud, or as I like to say, Tarquin Superbus. Not just a regular bus, a Superbus. Which, I guess, is some kind of train or maybe an aircraft. Anyway, Tarquin Superbus was an absolute fucking nut job. Tarquin was like a Super Macbeth. Or at least that's what the histories tell us. And we all know how Roman historians are bang on the truth all the time. So take all of this with the same grain of salt that you treat all ancient historians. Apparently, Tarquin Superbus seized the throne from his father-in-law, Servius Tullius, and Tarquin and his wife brutally murdered Tullius, who also happened to be Tarquin's wife's father. Tarquin apparently threw this Tullius guy down a set of stairs and then ran down the stairs after him so that he could give him a good and proper stabbing. Which, I mean, obviously, didn't your mother ever tell you not to run downstairs with a sword? It's dangerous. And the legend goes that Tarquin's wife, who, remember, was Tullius's daughter, then repeatedly drove a chariot over her father's corpse dozens of times to make sure that he was dead. And that led to this part of the city being known as the Street of Wickedness. Now, this was a crime known as parricide. Parricide is the murder of a near relative. And in Roman culture, parricide was the most heinous crime ever. They literally thought that this was the worst thing a person could ever do. Murder a close relative. All other crimes were lesser in comparison to this. Parricide was so bad that the Romans even had a unique form of execution for it. It was called the Pina Calais. If you like Pina Coladas. No, the Pina Calais which translates to the punishment of the sack. Romans had different forms of execution for different crimes. The execution always fit the crime. So the reason that Jesus Christ was crucified was because crucifixion was the punishment of rebels and Christ was rebelling against the Roman state. So if you do X, you get Y punishment as a result. So the killing of a close family member, parricide, that got you the pina calais. And the Pina Calais involved being tied up, hogtied, and then placed inside a sack. And then, into the sack that you're in, they also placed a feral dog, 
a venomous snake, a rabid monkey, and a rooster. And then they tied up the sack, beat the sack to get all of those animals nice and bitey, and then they threw that sack into the Tiber River. So you would eventually be drowned inside a sack after being bitten by a feral dog, a venomous snake, a rabid monkey, and a rooster. Which isn't the worst way to go that I can think of, but it is certainly up there. So that's what you usually get for the crime of parasite. But Tarquin the Superbus, when he killed the king, he became the king himself. He had enough political power to get away with it. So he didn't get the circus sack as a punishment, He got to be the ruler of Rome instead, because the universe is ultimately unfair. And that's how the seventh king of Rome came to power. Tarquin the Jumbo Jet was a contentious figure, but like I say, most Roman histories are hit pieces by later Roman historians with an agenda, so again, grain of salt. On one hand, Tarquin was a father-in-law murdering tyrant, But on the other hand, he was the greatest builder in Rome's history, and he started a lot of the projects that turned Rome from a town of mud huts into what would eventually become the capital of the known world. Rejoice, good people! Goliath the Terrible shall rule no more! But Goliath was the greatest king we ever had! What? He built roads, hospitals, libraries. To us, he was Goliath the Consensus Builder. And the biggest of these projects that Tarquin undertook was the Temple of Jupiter, which became the cultural and political centerpiece of Rome and one of the greatest buildings in the known world at the time. This thing was honestly one of the biggest temples in the world at the time, and it almost bankrupted the state of Rome to build it. And it was so hard to build that quite a lot of people involved in building it, slaves and professional stonemasons alike, Apparently the working conditions were so bad that they would often kill themselves rather than to continue working on this temple of Jupiter, which basically makes it an iPhone factory. Remember kids, iPhone factories have suicide nets around them. How many attempted suicides do you need to have in order that you need to build infrastructure about it? Anyway, this massive temple of Jupiter is getting built and it's costing a lot of lives, and it's bankrupting the state, and as they're excavating the earth to build this temple, clearing away the site of the temple, all of these workers start digging into the ground to lay the foundation, and, as the legend goes, while they're digging into the ground, they excavate a perfectly preserved human head. They're digging away, and they find a perfectly preserved human head. And if you're wondering why the builders are randomly finding a preserved human head, then you're asking the wrong questions because myths don't work like that. When a human head turns up, you don't ask where it came from. You just roll with the myth. So they find this perfectly preserved human head. It was dead, of course. It's not magical. It's just just perfectly preserved. It's not rotten or mummified or anything. It's like a freshly severed human head. And upon finding this perfectly preserved human head on the site of his ambitious building project, Tarquin the Superbus took this as an omen. Because remember, an omen is whatever the fuck you want it to be. And the omen that he took from this was that finding this severed head meant that Rome would one day be the head of the world. Which I mean... I don't think that's the takeaway, buddy. I think it's an entirely different message. 
Tarquin the Proud is the kind of guy who would buy a haunted house built on a sacred burial ground, and as the poltergeists were throwing furniture everywhere and sucking his children into the TV, he'd say, It's a vibrant nightlife here, isn't it? The gods favor me! As it would turn out, though, the gods, in fact, did not favor Tarquin the Superbus as much as he would think. Remember, for all of his city building, Tarquin was a massive dick, and his people hated him. He came to the throne with an act of murder, and that would not be his last. Murdering was perhaps his biggest pastime, and the Romans were well fed up with his bullshit. Tarquin the Proud's brutal, despotic reign was eventually brought to an end by his nephew, Lucius Junius Brutus. No, not that Brutus, the one that we all know about, although that Brutus was said to have been a direct descendant of this Brutus, and there's a whole lot of symbolism that we'll get around to one day about how the later Brutus should have been more like his ancestor. But this Brutus, Lucius Junius Brutus, he isn't quite royalty at this point, but he is the king's nephew, and thus is a person of some repute and considerable political power. So one day, Tarquin Superbus was out there doing some war, which was the style at the time, when, back home, one of Tarquin's sons raped a noblewoman. Not kidnapped her, but actual rape this time. The histories do make a distinction on this point. It was a rather brutal rape. This prince dude, Tarquin's son, his name was Sextus, which, I mean, make your own jokes, I'm above that. But Sextus fancied a noblewoman in the court by the name of Lucretia, because Lucretia was apparently one of the most beautiful women in Rome. And Lucretia did not fancy Sextus back, because Sextus was an absolute dickwad. And you know how this story is going to end, because it has happened a billion times in history, and will happen a billion times more. So, being spurned by Lucretia, Sextus then forced himself on her, and she fought him off. So Sextus pulls out a sword and says that if she doesn't relent, not only will he kill her when he's done, he'll also kill a male slave and then put their naked bodies together, making it look like Lucretia was having an affair with a lowly slave. I don't think he thought through why both Lucretia and the slave would be dead in this story, like she had a consensual affair with a slave and then they both somehow spontaneously died of sword wounds. I don't think he thought that far ahead, but I just tell the story as it is, right? Sextus wasn't exactly a thinker. He was more of a doer. So Lucretia, knowing that being seen to have had an affair with a slave would bring great shame not only on herself, but also her powerful family, she relents and allows Sextus to have his way with her. She also did not think through how any of this would work, but she's under duress. She gets a pass. So the Prince of Rome rapes Lucretia. Actual rape, even by weird Roman standards. Which is a bad thing for anyone to be doing, even the Prince of Rome. If you think that I'm pointing out the obvious here that rape is bad, keep in mind that a current prince of the British Empire is a known pedophile, and not only is he not being punished, he is about to attend that $4 billion party to watch his adulterer brother get a shiny new hat. The Romans were far more progressive in this regard. We've backslid since. So after the crime, Lucretia runs to the authorities, which includes this Brutus guy. 
He was one of the magisters. He was in charge of the courts. And she recounts the horrific tale of what happened with her and Sextus in all of the gory detail. She omits nothing. And it is traumatic to listen to for everyone involved. Everyone's gasping and crying and weeping into their sleeves. And as Lucretia's telling this story, and it's so vivid and visceral, this tale of her own rape, then, to really put a cap on all of it, she then pulls out a dagger and, in front of the assembled court, plunges the dagger into her chest, killing herself instantly. I know that this show and the last one have had an above-average number of mythical women stabbing themselves to death, but this one we do know we can conclusively prove that this one actually happened. And Lucretia killing herself, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. That's when the majority of Rome, led by Brutus, says, Alright, we've had enough of this king bullshit. No more monarchies. We are done. Everyone's born equal. Well, kind of equal. When the historian Livy describes this, he says, quote, Brutus drew the knife from Lucretia's wound and, holding it up, dripping with gore, he exclaimed, By this blood most chaste, until a prince wronged it. I swear that I will pursue Lucius Tarquinius Superbus and his wicked wife and all of his children with sword, with fire. I, with whatsoever violence I may, I will suffer neither them nor any other to be king in Rome. So, uh, yeah, he does not like kings. You have selected regicide. So Brutus then gathers a posse to end the whole idea of kings in Rome. And also, how fucking badass is that line? I'm going to start swearing things by sword and by fire. It is awesome. Whatsoever violence I may. (laughs) So Brutus gets his supporters together, and there are a lot of them by this point, and they rebel and they abolished the monarchy and exiled the Superbus family. I'm just saying it can happen, it has happened, and maybe we should start looking into it in the future. And that was, as they say, the end of that. There was no more monarchy. If anyone wants to forward this to Anthony Albanese, I have some thoughts on monarchies that he might be interested in. So, Brutus and the family of Lucretia, they band together, they get their supporters, and they exile all of the ruling family of Rome except for Tarquin the Proud, because he was off campaigning with the army. But he's out of the city, so same deal applies. He's effectively exiled. There are no more royals within the walls of the Eternal City. And it's at that point that Brutus issues a decree that never again shall the nation of Rome suffer a king, and anybody caught attempting to become a king will be horrifically executed in a way that will give everyone nightmares. And that last bit is crucial, because remember, standard methods of execution included nailing someone to a bit of wood until they choked on their own ribcage, or being thrown into a sack and drowned with an angry face-eating chimpanzee. Those are normal executions to Romans. So the act of attempting to become a king, the execution for that is going to be something even more scary than chimp murder. This is important because Rome will forevermore have a fanatical hatred of kings and anyone who attempts to become a king. 
It was the ultimate insult to be called a king. Cornelius Sulla essentially became a king, but he gave up his power because he shared the Roman aversion to kings. And then a few years after that, Julius Caesar would actually become a king because he didn't give a fuck about tradition and broke so many rules that most Romans would never have even considered breaking, which was how he managed to do it, but that's for another time. So, no more kings. That's the rule. Tarquin the Proud, off on campaign, he hears about this rule while he's away with his army, and he quite disagreed with it. So he rushes back to Rome to reinstate the monarchy, of which he is the head. Tarquin rather fancied being a king, and it was high time for Daddy to come home and put everyone back in their place. And when Tarquin and his army get back to Rome, Tarquin finds that the people have locked the gates, and he can't get in. And that's pretty much it. They just locked him out. That's kind of how the monarchy ended in Rome the city that was famous for never having kings and killing people who tried to become kings, they just sort of shut the gates and changed the locks so that the last king couldn't get back in. So Tarquin's standing there, bashing on the door, trying to get in, and he turns around and says to his army, all right, boys, let's tear down this wall and put me back on the throne. And that's when Tarquin's army tells him to fuck right off because they don't like him. So Tarquin himself has to flee Rome. I bet you were expecting some grand last stand or something, Tarquin the Proud fighting off the rebels with his bare hands or being thrown into a sack full of snakes or something, but no, it all just sort of petered out. He just said, let me in, and everyone in Rome told him to fuck off and then just closed the curtains. Over the rest of his life, he will make a few more attempts to get back into the city, He finds some local people and he begs, borrows, or steals their armies to march on Rome and try and take his throne back. But every time the Romans defeat him in battle, and the Romans take this as an omen that their approach to kings was the correct one, because if there's one thing we know about Rome, it's that an omen can be whatever you want it to be, kind of like how prayer works for people today. I mean, isn't it weird that the word of God only ever reinforces what you already think? So that reinforced the Roman attitude towards no kings. And that's it. That's how Rome became the famous Roman Republic, a land free of kings. Republic itself comes from the Latin res publica, the concern of the people. Rome would be a city where anyone could ascend the ladder based on merit alone. Anyone could become ruler of Rome just as long as that person wasn't a slave, or poor, or female, or black, or the wrong kind of white, or born into a middle-class family, or born into the wrong kind of noble family, or a little bit weird, or have someone in their family who was a little bit weird, or pick the wrong side of a feud. But aside from that, anyone in Rome could one day dream of being its president, or, as they called it, consul. But definitely not its king. Oh no, we will never have a king, thank you very much, and God help anyone who tries to become a king. And there's a very famous story about how Brutus, the guy who kicked all of this off, who is now the president, but definitely not a king, Brutus found out that his own sons were conspiring to overthrow this new republic and install themselves as the new kings of it. 
Apparently, Brutus's sons were not quite as passionate about Operation Regicide as their old man, and they saw a bit of a gap in the market, and they sought to make themselves the new kings of Rome. But then they got caught. Apparently, what happened was one of their slaves overheard them plotting to become kings and then just ratted them out. Which is probably a point in favor of abolition, if anyone was still on the fence about that. Someone being paid for their labor might be a little bit more discreet if they come across any potential treason that you're committing. It's just worth bearing that in mind, that if you pay people, they might let you get away with a little bit more. But this slave was a slave and thus had no fucks to give, so he dobbed the two sons of Brutus into the authorities on one count of trying to become a motherfucking king. This was bad. So Brutus, in accordance to the new laws that he himself wrote, and his duty as a Roman citizen, Brutus ordered that his own sons be brutally executed for the crime of kinging. Brutus ordered that his own two sons be paraded through the streets of Rome in front of a crowd of onlookers, naked, and then, when they got to the Senate, they were whipped to death. Whipped to death. Imagine what it takes to whip someone until they are not alive anymore. That is a lot of whipping. Think about what it would take if you were to grab an extension cord and hit someone with it until they were dead. It's a lot. That is how much Rome hated the idea of kings. This guy had his own two sons put to death in the most brutal fashion for merely thinking about becoming kings. And everyone else, every citizen of Rome, looked on and said, Yep, he did the right thing. Nasty business, kings. You can always make more sons, but kings are much harder to get rid of. He did the right thing. And this was always a story told to young Romans about the importance of duty to Rome over family and about how bad it was to be a king. It says a lot about their value system, which is going to be important as we begin to explore Rome further in the main show. The character of Brutus will forever be remembered by the Romans as the pinnacle of loyalty to the state and their ideal citizen, the person everyone should aspire to, because he had his own sons whipped to death. Oh, and by the way, the slave that ratted out Brutus's sons? Yeah, he was also executed for betraying his masters, because the universe is not fair. That's something that happens in a lot of these Roman stories. Slaves were pretty much fucked whatever they did. Oh, you reported your master's treason? You should have been loyal to your master. You get death. Oh, you didn't report your master's treason. Well, then that's treason as well. Care to guess what's going to happen? That's right, death. It was not fun being a slave. And so Rome spends the next few centuries having absolutely no kings, with every Roman citizen having it bred into them, into their bones from infancy, that they should violently murder anyone, even a close family member, anyone who ever tried to become a king. And that will last right up until you get someone so utterly egotistical that he didn't think of himself as a king, he thought of himself as a god, and thus he could do whatever the fuck he wanted, so he had his own personal army install him as god-emperor of the new Rome. And it does tend to help when you have your own personal army. You can get these kind of things done. 
So, yeah, that's the story. There we go. That's why Rome is Rome and not Reem. And an insight into the super fucked up psyche of the average Roman during the height of the Roman Republic. Which is going to be a very useful insight to have as we begin exploring the Punic Wars, as we're going to be doing in the main shows, because it will help illuminate a lot of the crazy shit that the Romans did during that period. A lot of things where you think, why would they do that? Well, yeah, this is why they do that. And the rest of the people listening will be sitting back wondering why the Romans were so crazy, but you super awesome folks can sit there smugly and delight in their ignorance, because I like you more. Catch you on the flip side.